I don't, you don't know like I know what he's done for me. Hallelujah. Amen. How be it can testify that God's been good to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. God bless you. Welcome to the Church of Omaha again. Of course, all of you online, thank you for coming and tuning in, listening, watching. We're so grateful that you are here with us in that uh, manner. Uh, so before we dismiss, I want to just mention we've got the Church in the Park coming up, uh, not this Sunday, but next, September 4th. It is Bring Your Own Food. Uh, so just everybody's on their own. If you want to bring, there are some uh, grills there that you can uh, bring some food like that, or you can bring you know, sandwiches, salads, whatever. But uh, the church will be bringing some of the um, volleyball net and different things like that. I think somebody's bringing a cornhole. Uh, of course, there's a lot to do there at uh, the park. So we're going to have a great time of fellowship there. There will be no service here at the campus. So nothing going on here at the church campus. Uh, we'll make sure to put up signs for that so everybody knows. But invariably, I'm wondering if somebody's going to come and nobody's going to be here and they're going to think the rapture took place. But <laughs> we, could, we should do that, Brother Jeff. But uh, nonetheless, we'll have a good time at the park. You love it too, buddy. I'm telling you. Kennedy don't think I'm a jokester, but you do. I'm telling you. Ah, ha, ha. Anyway. Well, we're going to go ahead and dismiss our children. Ministries, student ministries, uh, ladies, I believe, have a study. And, of course, our, um, uh, is there elements or is that done? Elements, I believe, is done. Yeah. Okay. So everybody else will be in here with us tonight and uh, looking forward to a great time uh, together. And uh, I do want to mention uh, to everyone... Uh, just what we're doing in its purpose. And just real quick, want to read Proverbs 15, 28. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. And that first part of that proverb there, the heart of the righteous studieth to answer. So that, along with the wealth of other scriptures that speak to us about uh, having a, a good and right answer, tonight we're going to take some more questions and uh, answer them while we're um, speaking if you want to text either Pastor Jeremy or myself, certainly we'll, uh, especially if it's related to the, the specific topic, we will check our, our text messages to see. Those of you online can do the same thing as well. And if you have a question, we've, we've got one more week. Next week we'll do this again. So if you have questions, please let us know. Pastor Jeremy, take us away. All right. So... Uh what we've tried to do the best that we can is we've had, you know, we have a, a whole ton of questions we can go through, and the best we can, we're trying to kind of pile them together. So you're going to hear a theme kind of throughout tonight's questioning, and it, it has to do with very much a hot-button topic, but I think the Bible speaks pretty clearly to, to all of these questions. Um, so we're going to kind of talk about uh, sex, sexuality, um, what is the church's response to uh, some of the things that's going on in the world, uh, and how does that, you know, go with scripture, uh, as well as some other uh, topics. So, kind of like last time, I'll start off, I'm going to kind of tell you the first question, and Pastor Powell, I will let you be the first to answer. So, and I'm going to kind of put the two of these questions together, because they're, they're directly related. So, first is, what do Christians believe about sex and human sexuality, and the second part of that is, how are Christians called to love LGBT uh, people? Okay, those are some loaded questions. Um, first of all, um, a lot of people um, are, shall we say, pleasantly surprised to find out that the Bible is pro-sex, but only within the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. Hebrews 13, verse 4 says, Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. So from that, and of course many other scriptures, I'm not going to read them all, but you know, obviously the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not commit adultery, um, would extend to any kind of sexual sin. The Bible prohibits sex outside the marriage in any form. This fornication, homosexuality, adultery, pornography, etc., and the reason I also mention pornography is the fact that uh, Jesus said, if you look at a woman lust after her, you've already committed the act in your heart. And so, you know, that definitely speaks to uh, the element of pornography in our day. Um, answering that question about, you know, what does the Bible say about sex? Well, the book of Song of Solomon 
Um, that's a love story between Solomon and the Shulamite and uh, has elements of it that can be sensual. And I don't mean to degrade the purpose of the Bible, um, but rather to say that it, it's you know, indicating that in that confines of one man, one woman marriage, it's, it's perfectly okay. The other part of that main question was about human sexuality, and the answer to that question is found in Genesis 1.27. The Bible says God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So God creates two genders, two uh, uh, male and female, in his own image, and puts a distinction between them biologically and otherwise uh, when he makes Adam and Eve. And any deviation from that plan is a plan to override the creator's purpose. Uh, some people believe that our sexuality is like software that can be updated. Just the other day, my phone uh, said, you need an update, and, you know, it'll update tonight if you do, don't do it right now. Well, once it updated, it, you know, whatever they fixed, it was fixed. It was better. Uh, but our, ourselves are not like that. We don't update our software just because we choose to want to become something else. And that leads into the uh, second part of that question, and that is how are Christians called to love LGBTQ plus people? Well, let me start by answering that by saying this. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And a lot of times what we do as Christians, and even our penal code in, in America does the same thing, we classify sins. Well, you, you stole, you know, something at a, at, a, at a gas station versus, you know, you murdered somebody. That's, you know, different. And, and there's penal codes that are different for that. Um, there's different types of murder. There's homicide. There's, you know, um, manslaughter, manslaughter etc. Um, you know, and so, but we do it in the church too sometimes, you know, and we classify things. But the fact is all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And if God had not loved the world, he would have not died for us. Here's what's interesting. The Bible is clear that he died for us while we were yet sinners indicating that there's no way we could have done anything on our own to get to him. So simply put, we love everybody like Jesus does. I'll also say this. Jesus gives a principle about love when he speaks in John 13, 35 to his disciples. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Now, some might argue that that's just for the disciples or just in the church. And I can understand where they might argue that from, except to say that when you look at the rest of Scripture and about love is the fulfilling of the law, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, do good to them that persecute you, so on and so forth, the fact is love becomes an identifying characteristic of the church. Okay, And I can disagree with somebody and still love them. I, I can vote differently than somebody and still love them. You know, I've worked with people that, that uh, have vastly different beliefs than I do uh, biblically and otherwise, and I can work with them and, and still love them. So I think love is the answer. Um, Jude 22 and 23 says this, And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others safe with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by flesh. So I think just to sum up that part before I turn it to you and let you, of course, answer, because I know you've got some answers on this question too, is love must be the divining, defining characteristic of our message which compels us to reach for everyone, hating their sin, but loving them. So uh, first I want to say, if you, if you see me playing through my phone, I'm pulling up scriptures as he's talking, it's just po popping in my mind. Um, we, or at least I know I very intentionally did not ask Pastor Powell how he was going to answer any of the questions tonight uh, for multiple reasons. Part of, the, part of the purpose in doing this discussion is to realize that there are, are different ways to think about topics and different ways to approach topics, but that the scripture is always the cornerstone that we take those thoughts and, and we measure it against the scripture. So sometimes he'll see things in a certain way that's biblical that I never thought of, and then likewise, maybe I will view it through my life circumstances, but again, filter strictly through the word. And, and that's where the Bible talks about there's wisdom in the counsel of multitude, that hearing different voices and opinions is helpful. And it is perfect that you ended that, you're, you're part of the segment there, by talking about love. Because I think one of the, the hardest things for us as Christians is understanding how can we love someone 
but also not, not justify or give off the impression that we are condoning their lifestyle. And unfortunately, the way that the world defines love is that if you, if you love me, then you accept me for who I am, and that you don't ask me to change, you don't ask me to be different because this is who I am, therefore you have to love me. But that's not actually scriptural at all. The Bible says, and you mentioned to it in the book of Romans, that this was how God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, right? But we know that the rest of scripture tells us that while we were yet sinners, he commended his love toward us, but then everything else talks about how that we have to change to be more like him. So his love reached us where we couldn't be reached on our own, where we couldn't have reached out to him because of sin. His love bridged that gap. But we also have an obligation on our end to reach back, and that is through holiness in changing our lifestyle and our heart and our, our wants and desires. So when we talk about uh, addressing someone who on this kind of, um, uh, I, I, can't, I hate to keep saying the word hot button topic, but the sensitive topic, I'll say it like that, the sensitive topic where you are addressing what, an individual may say, this is who I am. This is how, in, in their minds, how God made me. The first thing I would say is simply this, is that we were all born in sin and we were all shaped in iniquity and that every single person pre-salvation was defective because sin ruled our lives. But through God's perfection, love, and mercy, we were able to overcome and are overcoming that sin to be more like him. But here's the other big thing. The Bible tells us that if we don't love others, we don't know God because God is love. Well, then the question is, how does God, through his love, deal with people? Well, that's great. If you look in Proverbs chapter 3, um, let's see, let me pull this up real fast here. Proverbs chapter 3, looking in verse 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighted. You can also look in the New Testament. I won't read it for the sake of time, but if you look in Hebrews chapter 12, 6 through 8, and many other places... It is very, very clear that God loves us and he corrects us because he loves us, right? right? I've made the example before that if I saw my daughter running out toward a busy street, <laughs> I'm going to scream at her as loud as I possibly can. Yes. It's not because I'm, I don't like her. Right. It's the exact opposite. It's I love her so much, I want her to know that she is heading into danger. Yeah. And I have to do what I have to do to get her attention. Now, with that being said... You have to put all of this in context of the rest of Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that you get to go beat somebody over the head and, and, and demand that they make changes right now because that's not how God came to us. God didn't come to you and beat you over the head and say, change your life or I'm going to throw you in hell right now. Instead, he set the standard of truth and never wavered from it. But through his grace, little by little through relationship, he helped us to make changes to become more in alignment with that grace. So all of this is done through our relationships and our demonstration and living out truth for others. Amen. And, you know, when you were speaking, Pastor Jeremy, I also thought uh, a lot of times there can be a follow-up kind of question or, or thought to this, which is there are, um, you know, ministers, churches, preachers that are saying you're okay to live that lifestyle, um, clearly in violation of the word of the Lord. And some people are saying, well, it's, it's you know, my body. I want to do with what I want, etc." The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. That's the first two words, flee fornication. And again, fornication there uh, can be both specific but also generally to all types of sexual immorality. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. So sexual sin sins against the body. The next verse, what? Know ye not <clears throat> that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, you're not your own. So there it is right there that we belong to God. You're bought with a price, verse 20, glorify God in your body, your spirit, which are God. So like I told the, the, the account of, you know, that I would let, a person who's homosexual win the argument you were born this way because you must be born again. Equally, I think here 
you could bring out a biblical way in love to say your body's not your own. Right. If, if you're going to be born again and walk that path, then you don't belong. You belong to Jesus, not yourself. It kind of it makes me think back uh, Old Testament when um, it's talking about Jacob and Esau. And there's a, a particular passage. It's the first verse of one of the, the minor prophets. Yeah. And I, I'm trying to remember if it was Amos or... Anyway, the, the, this, the, this, the, it opens up, the book opens up by saying this. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And that, that verse always bothered me. Because I'm like, I don't quite understand how the that God who loved the whole world, that God who was willing to robe himself in flesh and suffer and die on a cross for us, um, would, would make this statement right out opening this book, Micah. Um, Malachi? Malachi? Malachi. Okay. Would open up this book by saying, I love this one, but I hated this one. But when you actually begin to read through the accounts of these two individuals, you actually understand what is really being discussed there. God did not hate Esau because Esau was, you know, the brother of Jacob. God didn't hate Esau because of one particular action he did, but God stated that he hated Esau because Esau's heart was so independent in that he was going to be the one to bring about his form of justice that when he was told directly not to go after his brother Jacob, he didn't care. And then, in fact, the people that descended from him kind of had that same mentality of, I'll do things the way that I want to do in my own timing because I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And the reason that God hates that heart and that kind of attitude is because you become so blinded to your own sin that God can no longer reach you. But that God is always reaching for us, right? But we have a choice, and if we're willing to hear that and accept that, in fact, we don't know everything, and that we need to change, and there's all of us have issues that need to grow, or do we turn our hearts away from God in the mentality that many today, we know what's best. God has to love us this way because he made us this way. But it's not scriptural. And, and I think that actually takes us into our, 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 next, our next question, kind of talking about love and, and, and where is the line. And you even brought up um, talking about uh, sexual immorality. And, and, and I think in the book of Proverbs, it even says that the, the person who commits sexual morality destroys his own soul in the book of Proverbs. So with that set up, the next question is, let's talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, so the question states this. It says, what does the Bible say about divorce and remarriage? Okay. Notice you're giving me all these big ones. Um, Jesus was actually asked the same question by the Pharisees. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to let Jesus answer the question. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 7, they, the Pharisees, say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? So they've asked this question. They want to know. And, of course, their motive is to trick Jesus. You know, um, you can see that throughout. Verse 8, Jesus says to them, he saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you to put away your wives. That's a very important statement. Moses gave an allowance for something that wasn't really my perfect will. And, it, and he follows that, and proof of that is what he follows next. He says, but from the beginning, it was not so. So this, this then has to take, a, take us all the way back to the Garden of Eden, where God is the originator and the authority of marriage. After he creates uh, Eve from the rib of Adam, he then has the first marriage ceremony. And the purpose of marriage is till death do us part. So when you see a, a marriage take place and there are vows being exchanged, it's not just some crazy Western tradition. Those are, and that's why when I do a wedding, I'll say we're gathered here in the sight of God and witnesses to join these together in holy matrimony for life. Because that's what the Bible says. Um, verse 9, Jesus then says, I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, 
and shall marry another committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. Now you can invert, and if it's the man that commits adultery and the wife divorces him, then he's the one that if someone marries him, so you can change that and it would still fit. But Jesus just used the one example there. So to just simply answer the question, um, really the only biblical reason for divorce should be um, sexual immorality, okay? And again, I mentioned how that Moses uh, allowed it, and of course that's God, because God you know, led the people through, and Moses was his voice. Um, so what I often hear, uh, and I'm just going to assume a follow-up to this, is people say, well, well if I'm remarried and, and you know, before we got in the church, are we sinning? Am I committing adultery? Well, what you did before Christ is washed under the blood uh, of the Lamb. So all sins are atoned for, all iniquity is purged, and all transgression is forgiven. Uh, so no matter what that is, okay, it's what you do after the new birth experience that then, then would count. So that I want to I be uh, clear of. But another question I've often been asked is, well, what do you do in a case where there's physical or emotional abuse that's you know, traumatic to uh, a, a spouse? Um, do you tell them just to stay together? Well, here's the thing. First of all, I'm always going to fight on the side of marriage. I've, I've often told couples when they've come to me and said, we need to talk to you. We're having an argument. I'll say, okay, I just want you to know I looked at the husband. I'm not on your side. I looked at the wife. I'm not on your side. I'm on the side of God and marriage, and I want to help you both. You know what I mean? Um, and I'll, I'll give as much scripture as I can. If I feel like they need to go see uh, someone, you know, like a therapist, a marriage therapist, I'm going to you know, suggest that. But I'm going to do my best to try to reconcile that marriage. And to that point, I've seen even in sexual immorality cases where there has been reconciliation and the couple is still married and they still go forward. Uh, however, what I've also seen, and this is, I can't say this as an uh, absolute fact across the board, but what Myron Powell has seen in the, in the people that I've pastored and ministered to in the last, you know, almost 30 years is when there is physical or emotional abuse, there's also always pornographic material or some other sexual immorality going on that, that they just haven't found yet. And sometimes it's found out during the, the you know, process of reconciliation. Sometimes it's found out after the divorce is over. So, I have felt good about suggesting to, you know, a spouse that's being uh, abused, hey, you need to get out of that situation for the protection of yourself and your family, um, your children, especially if there's children involved. Um, because, again, in every case I've dealt with, there's also been sexual immorality taking place. Um, so, again, just to kind of simply answer the question from Jesus' own words, marriage is supposed to be for life. And let me just throw this out there to anybody watching that's single, anybody that's in here that's single. This is why it is so important to understand it's not just about getting to have legal sex. This is for life. Okay? Uh, I'll just take just a brief moment to tell you something I did, and whether or not it was smart, I'll let you decide. But I met with this young couple that wanted to get married. And so I had heard this from an elder of mine, so I figured I'd use it. So I say to the, the young man, um, and you know, I'm sure young ladies also ready to get married and have their, their wedding night, but it's usually the men that are more excited about that. Um, and, you know, nobody smile, nobody give away your, you know, you know, we're talking about sex in church, oh, my God. Um, but I looked to the young man, and I said, I want you to imagine this scenario with me. You're sustaining from, from sex, you're, you're being, you know, good and right in God's eyes and to your future wife and all of this. We get to your wedding day. I pronounce you husband and wife. You kiss the bride. You go through the ceremony. You cut the cake, all of this. You're leaving the ceremony to go, uh, you know, to the hotel to get changed, to go get your flight to your honeymoon, wherever you're going, and somebody T-bones you, and you wake up in the hospital. And you wake up, and the doctor's in there, and your family is in there, and one of the first things you ask is, is my wife okay? Where is she? And they inform you that she is a vegetable. And it's doubtful she'll come out of the coma she's in. You just said a few hours ago 
for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, faithful to you and, you know, uh, you know all of that vow, are you going to stay married to her? That's a hard question to think about. And that young man looked at me and he's like, oh, oh, oh. I'm like, well, I hope you answered rightly. I, I, I don't remember what he ever answered. They did wind up getting married. I think they're still married today. Praise the Lord. But the point is, it's, the Bible says marriage is honorable. It is not to be entered into lightly. Better to stay single than to get married and not enter into it biblically, rightfully, and so forth. Amen. So in my mind, I'm not going to lie, as he's finishing that story, all I kept thinking is he would feel so bad if yeah. that young lady got into a wreck a week later. Oh, I'm not that stupid now. That was, that was when I wasn't here, so just so you know. So, <laughs> I've learned a lot. Hallelujah. So I... I, uh, I Originally, when we had this question, um, so last week, when Pastor Paul and I were, before we did last Wednesdays, um, he had sent me kind of a list of questions um, from, from some individuals, some from kind of uh, common questions online and that kind of thing. And, and this particular question was one of them. And as I was looking through this long list, I told him, I said, I, I think we should scratch the marriage and, and, and divorce and remarriage question altogether. And it had nothing to do with whether the, the, the scripture spoke to it, because it was very clear. But in my personal life, I have not had a ton of uh, experience, if you will, um, talking to others, counseling others in that role where their marriage was, you know, kind of on, on the rocks there and what to do. Pastor Powell, on the other hand, having been a pastor for quite a while, has had, I, I, I hate to call it an opportunity, but that, that um, burden, if you will, to kind of... Uh, be the person in between, but uh, I spent the last week just really thinking on this one question and kind of like in my mind trying to meditate on what does the word say, what is the principles of it, and those kind of things. And, and of course, I agree with all the uh, nuances of what you were talking about, what, what scripture allows, what it doesn't allow. But if you give me just a moment, I just want to kind of tell you the, the principles, though, that I kind of saw in marriage and in what Jesus was even saying when he was addressing the scribes and Pharisees when they were asking him this question. So if you back all the way up to the garden, and you have Adam and Eve, and God created man to be in a relationship with him. Therefore, when Adam and Eve was created, there was not a long list of rules that governed every decision they made, because their relationship was supposed to be based on mutual love and respect for each other, but also between them and God. And therefore, that love and wanting to be like God is what should drive their decisions, their heart should love God and drive those decisions. Of course, we know that sin entered in, and then man, like, messed it up big time. And so we get the Ten Commandments originally, but man's uh, ability to take something and make it ten times worse showed because they, they, they demanded that Moses give them a law for pretty much everything. Yeah. What is the maximum we can get away with before it's a sin? And so they got all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of laws written to govern every aspect of their life. And so when they pose this question to Jesus, this is what he is talking about, that you should not have required all of these rules to tell you how to govern a godly marriage. But because mankind is always looking at what can I get away with in their actions, it's required God to put into place scriptures. And I will tell you, a lot of people in the New Testament, when, when they think that, okay, Old Testament, there was the law, New Testament's grace, so much easier. I think what Jesus says in response to this question actually raises the stakes a whole lot higher. Because they asked Jesus, they said, you know, Moses said that if, if uh, there was infidelity, that that was grounds for divorce. When Jesus responds back and says, I tell you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you commit adultery. What is he saying there? that you are looking for the one physical act that's going to cause it. I'm telling you that you are already in adultery if that's what you're doing in your heart constantly. But that is not Jesus also saying there, since you've committed adultery in your heart, you can get divorced. It's actually the exact opposite. Marriage from the beginning was supposed to be a forever vow. And physical marriage is supposed to be a physical type and shadow of the spiritual marriage between the church and Christ. So when the Bible tells us that what God has put together, let no man put asunder, think about what would happen if God treated the church 
the way that we treat people who we're mad at. Mm -hmm. How quickly sometimes, and I'm not speaking to anyone in this room, just in generality here, in, in, in principle, how quickly some people are willing to throw away a marriage that they stood before God and made a vow that this is forever, how quickly some people will throw that away. What would happen if God took that exact same approach to the church? That's a very scary thought. But you see, what happened is in the Old Testament where there was physical law, Jeremiah prophesied that there's coming a day when that law would be replaced with an even better law written on the heart of men. And what Jesus was trying to do when talking to these individuals is bringing back marriage to what it should have been all along, which is a relationship governed by and defined by God. And God is merciful and God is gracious. But let me say one more thing and then I'll pass this back off because oftentimes when we talk about divorce, we usually are addressing the person who had something done to them. We, we often, uh, many of the messages are, are, are guided toward the individual who was cheated on, if you will, and kind of telling them, here's scripturally what you should, shouldn't do, that kind of thing. But I also want it to be known that the Bible speaks very clearly to the other side of the coin as well. And just because we spend a lot of time in here talking about how God um, wants us to have grace and how that, that we as Christians should not immediately seek out divorce, and, and I'm not speaking to any little nuance here, I'm just saying in general, we should not immediately jump to ending what God intended to be together forever. Woe to the person that willfully is hurting their spouse in a continuous way and there is no repentance in their heart. Because now, not only have you destroyed yourself, but you are potentially destroying someone else's spiritual life. And at some point, we will have to stand before God and give an account Absolutely. for those actions. Absolutely. You know, to your point, Pastor Jeremy, and I, I know we're, we've got other questions, but uh, Jesus, well, God, gave ten commandments. The Jews come up with 603 more. <laughs> um, but in the Ten Commandments, you see the first, um, and I'll say five, including the fifth, which is honor your father and mother, are horizontal, or excuse me, uh, a vertical. They're Godward relationship. Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not uh, make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor father and mother. Uh, and the reason for that one is, of course, it does parallel the, the horizontal, but God is our everlasting Father, and, and we know that the church is our mother. So if, if we obey those first five, those are vertical. The next five are horizontal. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, uh, don't bear false witness, and don't covet. Every one of those deal with the relationships on variable, uh, various levels. So if we just keep those, that's enough. It should be. Uh, enough, And it goes back, those commandments were given relationally. They're, they're negative commands, thou shalt not. But it's, it's like you referenced, you know, if your child's running into the, the street, you're not going to say, oh, honey, you know, running in the street is not a really sweet, really good idea. You're probably going to say, hey, stop, don't go in the street. You know, it's, it's, it's going to be a negative command, but if obeyed, a positive result. So regardless, the fact is, these are meant to be relational. And yet we've got to create either. And the other thing you said and I, I picked up on is so many people look for loopholes. What can I get away with and still go to heaven? I don't want that kind of relationship with God. I want the kind that says, how much more can I do to draw closer to you? So, amen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, there's a, a, a phrase I used to say all the time that we, we need to stop asking, is it sin? And instead, is it wise? There you, go. you know, if we governed our life choices by wisdom and less about, ooh, is this actually going to be a sin? I think overall our choices would be, would be much better. And as we, um, as we transition into our, our, next, our, our next one here, let me, let me just throw one more thing in here. And this applies to what we've already said, as well as to everything else that we will cover um, tonight and then next week. Beware of individuals. And if this is you, also beware if your response to any of these topics is always to say, well, what about this? And what if yeah. this? Right. 
there is a mentality, unfortunately, in our human flesh that's always seeking, like you kind of mentioned, that loophole. And if every question you have is, well, what about this? What if this? Then you are living that lifestyle of how close can I get to the edge without stepping over it versus the how close can I get to God and how far can I get away from the world? Okay, so speaking of that, let's go in our next question here is, and I think this is a softball of a question, so I don't think we'll okay, have a problem you. dealing with this one. <laughs> how should the church respond to racism and injustice? Mm. Well, I believe that the church um, must respond to these things, racism and injustice, with as much love, mercy, and prayer for justice to prevail. I think another key element to that is uh, validation. If you tell me something has traumatized you and I'm like, oh, dude, just get over it, man. I'm invalidating in that moment you know, what you've said. Now, there's a part where eventually we do need to move on from something, but at least validating that that can affect some people differently um, and recognizing that. And, and I want to just throw this out simply. Um, years ago, I used to hear people say, if you can't get along down here, how are you going to get along in heaven? I'm like, can't get along down here? You're not going over there. Uh, plain and simple. Uh, so I believe, I, I, I looked at this question, um, and, and I, I feel like God spoke to me. You, you kind of talked about kind of the other side of things, and I'm like, was there somebody that experienced this that we could maybe relate to? And, and I feel like Stephen is a good example. Uh, there was, he was unjustly accused. He was charged uh, in, in a you know, kangaroo court, so to speak, executed, um, all because the Sanhedrin was prejudiced against uh, followers of Jesus Christ. But here's what he says as he's dying. Acts chapter 7, verse 60. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. So I believe that gives us a, a Christian, a born-again example of how we should respond if we're the recipient of it um, and, and, and to pray for them. And if it's someone we know or if it's just, you know, generalized in that it's in the media or in our, in our you know, neighborhood or whatever, again, pray for uh, justice to prevail. Um, I believe that the church should look like the following two scriptures I want to share with you. Acts chapter 13, verse 1 says they were uh, in the church at Antioch. There were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, uh, Lucius, Menean, and um, Saul. I looked up their ethnicities. Barnabas was a Jew. Simeon was from Africa. Lucius was Greek. Menean was half Jew, half Samaritan. And Paul was half Jew and born a Roman. I'm like, wow. Talk about a very diverse group of people there. And they were unified, and they were so that the church should look like that, you know. Um, and so, and, and, and quite frankly, the reason we should look like that is the other scripture, Revelation uh, 7, verse 9. After this, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. That's what it's going to look like over there. It also needs to look like that down here. Um, and if I may, one more. It was a softball, but I'm going to hit it out of the park now. <laughs> um, 1 John 4.20 says, If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he say he love God whom he hath not seen? I want to I bring that scripture out because it grinds my nerves when I read about, hear about people claiming to be Christian, whether or not they're born again or not, but claiming to be Christian, believing in Jesus, believing in the Bible, and will say and do stupid things against other people and, and claim God somehow told them to do this. It just, it, it wow, I, I don't understand that. And again, Scripture, if, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. And Revelation says all liars will have their part in the lake of fire. So simply, I think the way we deal with it, again, validate to a certain extent and, and show respect, obviously love, mercy, and prayer for justice. 
uh, obviously, I agree with all of those. And, and for me, when I was kind of thinking about this, and obviously the past couple of years, not just within our country, but worldwide, it, it's been like a whirlwind of so many different factors, you know, political and social and uh, uh, medical, and there's all these factors going on. And I, I know for me, sometimes it, there are things, so right at this very moment, there are things happening that most in this room are completely unaware of, oblivious to, that if it was happening in our backyard, we would be completely irate and outraged. But because we don't see them, because we're not uh, uh, intimately aware that they're happening, it's easier not to necessarily think about or deal with those issues. So it's, it makes sense in some regard whenever this stuff happens in our backyard, so to speak, that we um, become emotionally invested and, and upset if it's directly affecting us, whether that us is the church, whether that us is a specific uh, a group of people, whether that us is a state, whatever it is. Unfortunately, mankind is constantly trying to divide itself out into groups when scripture tells us that really the only issue should be two sets of people. And I've said this many times, but it's worth saying again, only two divisions in God's eyes are those who are saved and those who need saving. And, that, and that's, that's all that God sees in that division. But the only thing that I want to add to this is saying this. The goal of the church, the purpose of the church, imagine with me if you can for a moment. You brought up Stephen. Imagine Stephen one day is hanging out on the streets of gold and Paul comes walking by. Right? Paul, the guy who was consenting to having Stephen stoned, watching as this man was... I, I wish I could describe for you the the horrible nature of what happens in a stoning. Um, and I, I, maybe if you, if you have time on side, I'll tell you a very particular story. But in that moment, in our flesh, what most of us would say is that Stephen would be like, how did you make it here? Like, you're the devil incarnate. You had me killed and stoned. In, in our flesh, right, that's, that's our emotional, immediate response. That we want to be like, how on earth did Paul make it here? But the reason that Stephen said what he said at the end of his life is because that his purpose was not defined in terms of the earth. It was not de defined in terms of give me my temporary justice right now. And it was more of a God-driven mission that we need salvation for all of mankind. Yeah. And if that cost me my life, then so be it. Yeah. That, that's, that's a tough statement. Yeah. Are we, am I, is Jeremy willing to lay down his life for the cause that I say I believe, that I'm willing to say that I will die to see the furtherance of the gospel. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those words are easy to say, but when those, those situations arise, a whole lot of other stuff happens. Yeah. And, and the reason I'm saying all of this is simply this. There is a human desire that when we see injustices happening within our country, within our community, we have a, 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 a visceral reaction. And in, to most degrees, it's warranted to have that emotional feeling and anger and all of that stuff. But we can never forget that our purpose is not seeking justice on this earth. Because at the, at the root of, of racism, at the root of prejudice, at the root of all of that stuff is the same issue. And it's sin. The root of all of those is sin. Now, it affects people differently. We all have different lived experiences. I'm not trying to downplay any of those experiences. But what I'm saying is that what binds us together always should supersede what separates us in the physical. And our mission is not to see just laws and things change here. Praise God if they do. And when we can vote and do what we can in the natural order of things to see them happen. But our calling is not on this earth. Our calling is to be ambassadors for Christ. And so our response must be measured against the word. Absolutely. You know, and when you brought up uh, Stephen and the potential meeting in heaven and all that, I, I begin to think as well, when you look at when the church started, okay, it, it was Jewish. Um, you know, the 120, the 3,000, Acts chapter 4, so on and so forth. Um, but all of a sudden, God is sending a vision to Peter. And, and he's showing him this net uh, with these unclean animals. And Peter's still thinking in terms of the law. I can't eat that. It's unclean. You know? 
And God says, and this is what the Bible says, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Um, and so God had already destined that, hey, something's going to happen here. Um, and I, I have to wonder how this played out because you have in Acts 6, even among the Jews, the Hellenists felt like they weren't getting, um, their, their widows weren't getting the same treatment as all Jews. And there was this racial tension going on. And, and of course, the Gentiles. And what are we going to do with them? And, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And so uh, it's, it's been something that's been around is what I'm trying to get at. And I think I, I like how you brought that out, Pastor Jeremy. We've got to go back to how does this play out in terms of eternity? And how can I answer that question and be there for someone and love them in response to eternity? And, and we should all know, and I think we're, we're kind of coming up to the end of our time here, but I think something that we all have to be willing to do is extend others a little bit of grace. Because even though we all read the same word, or at least I hope we do, we all read the same Bible, we serve the same God, but we all have our own individual struggles and shortcomings and, and personality things that we all have to work against. Good proof of this is Peter, the man you just mentioned, who God gave a vision of the clean and unclean animals and how God spoke directly to him and said, let no man call unclean what I have called clean. This same man had to be reproached or, or, or rebuked yep. Yep. by Paul later on, yes. right? Yep. Paul came to him and he said, listen, you're acting completely different around the Gentiles whenever your, your other Jewish elites show up. Right. You can't do that. And Paul then lays back out, there's not Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, bond nor slave, all that stuff. So Peter, the man who delivered the, the salvation message we cling so tightly to, the man who, who uh, received this vision and went to uh, Cornelius, yep. still had room to grow, yeah. still had his own individual things within his character that he had to constantly work toward improving. So all I'm saying is that we all need to extend one another a little bit of grace. Sure. I'm not saying we ignore all sin. I'm not saying we just watch them, you know, walk down the road to destruction, not say anything. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is choose a little bit of trust before being suspicious. Amen. Do we want to, I think we've got time to finish up the last one. All right, let's do it. Okay, okay the last question is, uh, what do Christians believe about death and dying. Well, I like what you said. I think it was last week. Um, and it might have just been you and I talking, but death is a doorway, yeah. not um, the end. It's not, you know, the end of a book. You put it on the shelf, it's over. Um, death is a doorway into eternity. Uh, I want to read to you, uh, just give you my answer by reading the scripture. First um, Thessalonians 4.13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. The word asleep there, Paul's using it um, it means dead or, or those who have passed away. That you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which also sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them or, or cause them not to be raised uh, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So very simply, the way we look at it is, again, I'll use your own words, as a doorway. And I want to be ready when that door opens <laughs> to walk through it and hear him say, well done. Now, Here's the, the piece to that, though. Death is never easy. Even if, even if the person's lived a good life, even if they're ready, because we are losing the connection, companionship, friendship, all of those uh, variables are being lost. And so that's what makes it difficult. And it doesn't mean we don't grieve. It says we don't grieve as others who have no hope. There's a difference. The grief is there, and we should experience that. There's a loss. There's a void. I'm not going to talk to grandpa anymore. I'm not going to talk to my friend anymore, whatever that relationship is. But if that person is ready, we have hope that we'll see them again. And that should be our comfort that I'm going to see grandma again. I'm going to see grandpa again or whomever that might be. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean that, that, that pretty much sums it up. And we, we obviously, the, one of the cornerstones of, of what we profess and teach out of Scripture is that, that this life is not the end. It's not, it's not all that there is. And uh, the Bible talks about, I, it was Paul who was speaking, I'm trying to remember exactly where, uh, which epistle it was in, but he was basically saying that if Christ is not risen, what a, what a wretched people we are. We have no hope, right? But he said... But, Right, of all men, most, but because we know yes. that Christ is risen, yes. therefore we live in hope, knowing that we too shall rise and that we'll take off this corruptible and put on incorruption. Yes. But I, I am glad you brought up the other side of that coin because just because we preach and sing and shout about heaven and just because we, we shout about how that we know that our loved ones who are, who are walking with God are in heaven does not take away from the physical weight of experiencing the loss. And there is nothing wrong scripturally with sadness. There's nothing wrong with grieving because we have lost something. And I would say that we should try to keep in mind that we're not grieving for them per se because we believe and know that they're with God, but we're grieving for ourselves that we no longer have that access to speak with them. And Something that, I, that I, I worked through in my own kind of journey dealing with, uh, my, you know, PTSD and all those different things. And then uh, my mom passed away last year. And um, I was actually thinking about this here pretty recently um, when Sister Vernon was up here telling the story of her mom and how that she went and, uh, you know, saw her mom sitting up on the side of the bed. And, and you know, all the events that, that occurred with that and, and, and what solace that brought her. Uh, for me, I didn't quite have the same experience. The last time I saw my mom was on FaceTime, and uh, she was very groggy and under, you know, the influence of a lot of medications, and, you know, just really did not look very good, and, and that was it. And then she, she passed away, and I got called while I was at the ER working. And that is still something that, to this day, I, I have to process. Um, up here, I know that my mom's in heaven. Up here, I know that because my mom, you know, got her life on track and those things. But there is a big difference sometimes between knowing things up here and knowing things right here. There's still times that it hurts and it's okay. That's why the Bible says we mourn with those who mourn, right? And we laugh with those who laugh because we are all supposed to be family with one another. We have different backgrounds. We have different experiences. We may even have different physical last names. But if we truly believe in the word of God, then we have to also believe that every one of us wears the same last name of Jesus. And that makes us family. And if we are family, we need to mourn with those who mourn, rejoice with those who rejoice, and always be willing to extend a little grace. Let's all stand. We'll close out in a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to come together as a family, Lord, and discuss your word and try to understand your heart, oh God. And we, we know that some of these issues and some of the things that happen in life are complicated and, and we, we, we are confused at times, but I am grateful that you have given us the spirit which can lead us and guide us into all truth, that we are not left to our own to figure out what is going on, but that we can trust in you in all things. Lord, I pray for all those in this room who are hurting, those who have had loss. I pray that you would be their comforter, those who are sick, that you would be their great physician, oh God, that you would be with us an encourager and help us to be your mouthpiece to a lost and dying world. We give you all glory and all honor in Jesus' name. Amen.